Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Welcome to uh, a special edition of Godpod, and um, today is uh, unusual. It's um, Godpod like never before because uh, we are doing this not in person uh, as we normally do. Normally, if you are a regular listener to Godpod, you'll know that we uh, gather in a little room around some um, microphones. Not that you ever see us doing it, but that's kind of what we do. Uh, and this is our first remote Godpod because we are uh, recording this right in the middle of the uh, coronavirus. Uh, pandemic and uh, as we all know it's affected everyone pretty well across the world and uh, uh, we are all in our homes uh, today uh, recording this God pod so um, the uh, it's great to, to be with you today and uh, as you know I'm Graham Tomlin and um, hosting today's God pod we also have Jane Jane Williams with us hello uh, always good to have Jane um, as part of the uh, the original team but we also have a special guest today who is um, uh, the Bishop of London, Bishop Sarah Mullally. So Sarah, it's uh, delightful to have you with us. So welcome to Godpod. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. So uh, today, our, um, well, there's really only one thing that everyone's talking about right now, which is uh, this um, remarkable uh, change of life that we're all experiencing right now, the, um, uh, the impact of the coronavirus um, or COVID-19 pandemic uh, across the world. And uh, uh, we're all self-isolating, we're all in our different houses, we're doing this conversation by Zoom. Um, and uh, what we're going to try and do today is to kind of just uh, to talk about some of the sort of ethical and theological issues that this um, virus is raising for us. And I suppose to begin with, um, a question that many people are asking, I was on a, a kind of call-in thing the other night with uh, youth leaders here in the Diocese of London, and one of the questions they were asking to me is a lot of their young people are asking is, well, why is this... Why is this thing happening? How, how as Christians do you make sense of this? Is somehow, you know, sometimes in the Bible you read about plagues that have been sent by God um, as a judgment upon the world and so on. Um, is that how we understand this? Uh, what sense do we make of it? And in terms of our Christian faith, uh, why is this happening to us? Um, Jane, do you want to have a crack at that to begin with? Yes, I mean, I think it is... Um it's never a bad thing to stop and think about the way in which we treat each other in the world and um, how that might be uh, not in accord with God's will. But I think we have no particular reason to think that this is a this pandemic is a punishment. I think we're aware that um, these kind of things have happened in the past. Uh, I think um, it, it's possibly salutary for us in the developed world to be aware that kind of um, shortages and uh, dangers that we're currently undergoing are um, day to day in a lot of the rest of the world, places that have suffered from war or um, uh, extreme poverty in the past. Um, and I, I, I think for, for us in the developed world to, to be facing this loss of control um, is one of the issues that, um, that theologically and sociologically we, we need to come to terms with. But um, 
but I, I suppose the, the question about why does God let this kind of thing happen is 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 one of those most basic ones. And it's I just always find it interesting that we only really ask that question when it affects us. Um, when it's affecting other people, we sort of it doesn't raise our, our, above our, our theological horizon um, as much. And yet we know, as I say, that a lot of the rest of the world um, suffers all kinds of things all the time. We don't think of that as why does God let that happen? Yeah. So I think it's um, a, a time for us to sort of take stock of re the responsibility we have um, in relation to the world, um, but also uh, to take stock of the way in which our theology is very often self-centred. Um, mm -hmm. We don't mind if this happens to other people. and It doesn't make us question God. We only mind when it happens to us. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So thank you. And Sarah, I guess in your very public position is... Uh, Bishop of London, I guess you must get asked this question mm -hmm. a fair bit, might be by media interviews or whatever it might might, might be, but I mean, your response, your reaction to that um, question that I guess a lot of people are asking you, either within the Christian faith or outside the Christian faith, why is this happening? Yeah, it's interesting actually, um, even before now, if I'm with a group of young people, often the most common question they ask me is that why does God allow suffering? Um, and part of it is they know my background uh, as a nurse, but it's it probably one of the most common questions that I'm asked. And I'm always very honest um, uh, in a sense that I don't know the answer to that. And I also feel I'm in good company because you look at Job or the Psalmist and actually there's a lot of questioning, isn't there, in, in, in the, particularly the Old Testament, uh, our Old Testament scriptures. So I do think it's good to ask questions of God um, and, uh, and particularly at this moment, encouraging younger people and anybody to feel that able to question God. Um, we may not necessarily hear or know the answers um, straight away, but, but I, so I think there's an honest, I always have an honesty, I don't really know the answer to that, but what there is a, in, a, in a sense that I do know is that God is in the midst of it. And I think, you know, God is in the midst with us. Um, and certainly for me, that bit about how do I make sense of it maybe is a better question than why does God allow suffering? and, and um, and I do, uh, like Jane, think that it is an opportunity for us to reflect on how we respond in the face of what's happening and what does that tell us about us and what does that tell us about God? Um, and therefore, how do we respond to what is around us? And for me, there is a sense in which my faith is part of the anchor in that. Uh, and maybe part of my faith allows me to look at the suffering and pain and see it, um, but also help me to put it in a broader context uh, in that uh, maybe there is, will be a better future for us. Yeah. I think that's very, um, very helpful and, and very wise. I mean, it seems to me, I think you're absolutely right, you know, in answer to that question, you know, why does God allow the suffering? We kind of have to say we don't know. And there's a reason why we don't know. Yeah. It's not just because we are, you know, there isn't, there isn't a, you know, we're, we're incapable of understanding it. It seems to me that there's something in the very nature of evil that is, there is no explanation because it's the absence of explanation. There is no answer to evil because it's the absence of answers. Yeah. You know, what evil simply wants to do is destroy everything that's orderly and structured and yeah. full of life. And, and it just seems yeah. to kind of reduce it to nothing. Yeah. And so our inability to give an answer is in some, it's almost part of the answer yeah. because there is no answer because evil is the absence of answers. Yeah. And it also strikes, strikes me that you know, one thing we can do in a situation like this is like, oh, well, I no longer believe in God because you know, a good God could not possibly have allowed this to happen. But then have you solved the problem of evil and suffering? Well, you, you haven't because you've still got to face it. You've still got to face mm -hmm. your 
your friend or your wife or husband or, or, or your neighbor who goes into hospital gasping for breath and you've got to or you've got to face that yourself and and the one thing we need when we're facing struggles and difficulty and suffering is, is hope and the one thing the christian faith does give is, is hope that this could be one day different that evil is actually an alien in the world doesn't really belong here but in the beginning god created a world that was good and one day it will be entirely good and evil will be banished and so on so it seems to me there is a there is a, a genuine reason why we can't give an answer to it and the, you know i've never met a christian who knows the answer to suffering um, the reason we believe is not because we've got an answer to it but because exactly as you said sarah we've heard a story of a god who made a good world who end you know who, who enters into it tackles evil in its heart which is what we're remembering this holy week we're recording this on Monday thursday um, and that is that is the answer it's not an explanation but it's the coming of god into the world in jesus christ uh, to go to the heart of darkness in the cross and to kind of transcend that into the resurrection that is crucial uh to to making some sense of it um i also think i also think the point that jane uh, made about control is also an important one in the midst of this i think part of our challenge is that we've lost control um and and i do think that we um you know, we have we spend a lot of our time trying to be in control, um, and we find ourselves actually we can't control the situation. We can't fix it. You know, you know the, the nurse in me wants to make everything better, and I can't do that. Um, and I do think in that, um, you know, particularly at this time of year, that sense of not being in control or letting go is an important one to to wrestle with, really. Um, not least that uh, you know, I always feel that uh, Good Friday and, and then the Saturday is a place where, you know, we lose control. We're no longer in control. So, so um, you, you know, one of their news headlines said, you know, the long Good Friday. And it does feel like that. It's a, a long Good Friday for us. We're not in control. Yeah. And it's interesting that that in, in, in the incarnation, God doesn't give us an answer to the problem of suffering. Mm. Um, so Jesus doesn't come and say, look, I'll, I'll explain it all. He enters into it and takes upon himself that, that real helplessness. He is done to, um, he, is, uh, he becomes a victim um, in a way that just seems so shocking and alien to our understanding of what God can be like. Um, uh, and yet at the same time, as Graham says, this is the source of our hope, isn't it? Because what is done to God is not the end of any story. God has always got more. So the, the cross looks like the end um, of, of, of Jesus. It looks like the end of all human possibility there. And it is the end of all human possibility. It's not the end of God's resource. God is able to do um, unimaginable things out of, out of the darkness. And that's why it is hope, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. And I guess part of that um, loss of control is, is the, the really difficult decisions that people face in a time like this. Um, and I'm conscious, Sarah, you, you um, as, as many listeners will know, you are a nurse, or the chief nurse in the, in the United Kingdom, um, heading up all the nurses in the, in the country. And so therefore you've worked within the NHS, you've seen this firsthand. And I suppose I'm just conscious of the really difficult decisions that doctors and nurses are having to take at the moment, um, not just in this country, but across the world. You know, you've got a limited number of ventilators. Who do you give a ventilator to? Is it the most in need is it the youngest the most likely to survive is it first come first served really really difficult decisions that are uh, that are having to be to be taken and i guess within the 
within the church we're having to take difficult decisions do we do we keep our churches open do we do we close them for the sake of of public health and so on those are really tr tricky sort of ethical decisions here um, I mean, how, how do you approach that i mean given your background in the nhs you've been in situations where those sort of decisions had to be taken what 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 are the ways in which you go about those decisions do you think one of the things i've always always reflect on is that um i think we like to think in certainty so we like to think there are right decisions and wrong decisions uh, and we see that running through our media as much as anything they want to know the right answer um, and um, the truth is that we make the best decision with the information that we have available. Um, and, you know, we, uh, uh, you know, I'm just so proud of our National Health Service. We have, you know, the best trained doctors and nurses and researchers, um, you know, in the world, really. And they have been trained to make decisions. You know, that is part of what their work is, is um, how do you make decisions? And the reality is they make decisions with the best available information that they have. Um, and but some of them are always tricky. Um, you know, very rarely are they without, um, uh, you know, amount of struggle and amount of work. You know, they are tricky decisions they're making. And, and the challenge of this pandemic is that they are having to use all those skills. But actually, some of them will find themselves in situations that they have not been in before. Uh, and therefore, the, the pressure on them to make those decisions, I think, is much harder. And uh, we certainly ought to be holding them in, in our prayers. Mm -hmm. And of course, with any decision, you make it based on the knowledge that you've got, the training you've been given. You also base it on experience. You know, most of these uh, professionals have experience. You make it on uh, the experience you've got. And the truth is, most decisions now are made as parts of teams. So it's not one person making a decision. You know, there'll be a anaesthetist, a pathologist, a nurse, a, you know, a whole range of people, physiotherapists that make decisions as a team. And I think one of the great benefits of the National Health Service is that they've worked over the years to work to develop in teams because they know that's the best environment to make it. And I also believe that, um, you know, most doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals will also have some ethical framework. Now, for us as Christians, our faith will play into that. Um, but even those of other faiths or no faith uh, will be able to describe to you how they make ethical decisions. And, and uh, all uh, healthcare institutions have ethical committees and frameworks. And, and some of them will include faith uh, members as well. And, and so they do, you know, that there is some standing back and thinking and taking the long view as well as the immediate. Um, and I'm almost certain that is going on at the moment. But I do think um, that we should not underestimate that some of those decisions uh, will be decisions that people have never had to face before. And whilst the theory will be absolutely the same, uh, you know, we, we do need to look after them. And I do think, you know, they are making the best decisions given the information that they have given. And, and for us as a church, you know, some of our learning about that is to learn that decisions are made as in teams we ought to learn that you know none of us should be making decisions on our own yep. uh, we should be open to other people's views um you know our experience our training come together uh, and obviously for us as christians uh, that discernment with god is important as well so you know even in the nhs as a nurse even now my prayer life is part of decisions sure. jane any thoughts on this question of tricky moral decisions that are having to be made right now 
I found it very helpful that, um, what Sarah was saying about uh, our, our longing to make the right decision always. And I think, again, as Christians, we can sort of, um, we can have a picture of God that suggests that unless we make the right decision, then we're off God's map in some way or another. Mm. And actually living with the, the reality that um, there, are, uh, there are the best decisions we can make, I think is a hugely um, morally important thing to say, encouraging people really to be able to articulate why they're making the decisions they are, um, and then helping them uh, to make those decisions and live with those decisions and the rest of us accept those decisions. Um, so so I, I mean, I don't know what you think about that, Sarah. Yeah, and one of my um, thoughts is that actually we also need to be very self-reflective in the decisions we make. You know, so, so uh, you know, inside me, actually what I want to be is outside uh, embracing people. I want to be comforting them in their moment of grief and bereavement. You know, I'd want to be in on uh, those uh, hospital wards comforting the dying. Um, that is my inner desire, but actually... Uh, the safest thing is not to do those things at the moment. And therefore, how do we find a different way of operating? So I also think we have to be self-reflective because so I know what my tendency is and what I'd want to do. But that need to listen to other people that says, actually, you need to find a, a different way of doing that. And I do think, you know, that this is one of the real challenges for um, uh, our hospital or healthcare, you know, our healthcare chaplains at the moment is because our professional uh, healthcare chaplains you know they have a very specific role and they do require support for from clergy to support them but actually we you know if they're going to do it they can't be in the intensive care unit because they're not trained to do it they cut they we would be wasting very valuable personal protective equipment so therefore you have to find a different way of working a different way of doing it uh, and um so we have to also understand what what is it that our tendency to do and that may not be the right thing in this situation I was um reading something recently by the uh was a theologian ethicist um Luke Brotherton who's a, a friend of ours and it was saying um was, was talking about these decisions as what he calls tragic decisions yeah. it's quite a helpful way of thinking about it in other words it's a decision where basically whatever you decide someone is going to suffer as a result of it yeah but there's no clear very obvious uh, right way forward where there's a moral conflict involved, where there's a sort of, there's a kind of tragedy on either side of this. Mm. And I guess that's true of the decisions doctors and nurses are making yeah. at the moment as to, you know, where scarce resources are, are allocated. Families are having to make that. You know, if you've got a, if you're at home and you've got a, maybe a vulnerable person in your house and you've got to make the decision, do you, do you go out to the shops mm. uh, to get essential supplies, but risk picking up an infection and bringing them home? That's a really difficult decision for people having to take. Do I go to work? Do I stay home? And so on. Um, um, as the church we're having to make those decisions as well you know about whether churches close or stay open and uh, and so on and um and also with all these decisions so, so you're never going to make a decision that, that that actually is clearly the right thing everyone's happy with it someone is going to suffer on one side of that decision or, or not and that's part of the kind of um the complexity of exercising leadership in this context and it's seeking to go into that with as you, as you were saying sarah you with your ethical framework with what really matters to you and I suppose as, as from a Christian perspective trying to make those decisions in such a way that respects and honours uh, the value and the holiness and the fragility of the people who are affected by it on either side of, of those decisions those who are going to be unhappy with the decisions made those who are going to benefit from it uh, but that element of, of 
there is an element of tragedy about these decisions that, that are having to be made. It somehow helps you to make the decision um, because you're not looking for the perfect solution because there is no perfect solution in these kind of circumstances. But I suppose it's also important um, for those of us who don't have to make those tragic decisions, those really um, life-changing tragic decisions, to be willing to support in prayer and in advocacy those who do have to make those decisions. It's very easy to sit in one's armchair yeah. and think, well, I wouldn't have done that, they shouldn't have done that. Mm. Um, uh, and I think we've had a tendency to do that as a culture recently, to pick holes in what everybody else does without ever thinking, mm. what would it be like to have to make those decisions ourselves? So I think, mm. uh, again, the sort of call to really support in prayer mm. and in advocacy, the people who are having to make those decisions for us. I think that's right. Um, to pray for them at this particular moment is really important. I also think there's something about um, theological educators as well. Is is thinking of those people um, that we're, you know, that for example, Jane, your training for ministry is actually how do we train people uh, in a way that uh, develops within them an ethical framework. Um, so actually, what you begin to do for us as uh, people of faith is be, almost begin to practice. You know, in our, you know, we may not ever make the big decisions that we're seeing at the moment, but we will make decisions. Um, and so how do we uh, equip uh, people in training with that sort of uh, framework for Christian reasoning to be able to practice uh, a process uh, for doing that? And I do think that's important to, to almost help people to practice some of those decision making. So, so when they're there, they've got that framework, framework to do, because of course that's what uh, doctors and nurses will do you practice it and then you say you're ready to use it but maybe uh, so for me that's why you know some of the F uh, Christian reasoning is really important in theological training so that we help people begin to practice that and it's, it's both isn't it it's both a both that ethical framework that you can refer to but, but, but there's another element of these decisions that also draw on spirituality prayer character yeah. um, sensitivity to people uh, but it's part of this as well. I mean, you, you know, because I guess at one extreme, you could go to a, a sort of philosophical or moral, moral framework like utilitarianism, where you almost do a kind of calculation who's, you know, who's, how can we maximize the benefit? You know, who's going to, um, you know, uh, you almost do a sort of mathematical process to try and work out what's the decision that will bring about the best for the most numbers of people. And there seems to be something slightly calculating about that. Whereas it seems to be a Christian ethical approach is both looking at the ethical framework, what are the values that we make, but but also factoring in the pastoral, factoring in the human, factoring in the uh, the sense of you know prayerfulness as part of that as well, which you know doesn't replace the ethical framework, but it's part of that too. So that's where I probably talk about uh, Christian reasoning, uh, which is partly why I always talk about myself being a practical theologian. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah, good. The, the, I mean, I suppose the other thing that, that again, Sarah has helped me highlight it is is um, is to make these decisions as a community, mm. Um, mm. and as a church, you'd think we would be good at that, wouldn't you? That's because mm. it's so meant to be so deep in our DNA that that's what we are. We are um, a, a community of people drawn together around Jesus Christ, um, mm. and and so one of the things we ought to be really good at is noticing that people have different priorities, different um, instincts about things and, and, and how we reason together. Um, I, I'm, and I, again, I suspect that we haven't been really good at that. I suspect we've 
each felt we have to stick up for what I think is right, you know, and uh, and argue against each other. What would it be like really to reason together as a community and try to grow together, grow our moral sense as a community? And, uh, I mean, just going on from that, I guess one of um, maybe more in the direction of you know questions this is raised for the um, for the church. Uh, I guess a lot of churches have had to sort of reinvent their life over the last few weeks you know this unprecedented situation where we're not able to kind of meet together in person we're not able to use our buildings in the same way that we've been used to for for, for centuries um a lot of churches have started doing online gathering through zoom or through google hangouts or whatever technology is available and i suppose one of, one of the questions i think is this you sort of surfaces around um social media and others is well is 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 this church uh, is online church church uh, in the fullest sense of the word that um, that it is when we are kind of gathered physically present to each other um, you know one of those questions around that is holy communion you know that uh, we're not able to take bread and wine now in the same way that we uh, normally are so I guess it, it raises some really interesting ecclesiological questions about the nature of the church um, so um, Jane and you have any observations on that is online church church in what way does it relate to kind of our normal experience of church I mean, I, I think I've been thinking about this quite a lot because I find, I find it very interesting. A lot of churches are actually reporting that more people are joining and whether that's because of the current crisis or whether it's actually enabling a kind of, you know, it's, it's quite nice to sit in your pyjamas with your cup of coffee and your video off and join church. Not that I've done that, perish the thought. Are you going um, to go in your pyjamas to church when this is all over, Jane? <laughs> well, that's the, that's the question, isn't it? And, <laughs> and, and again, um, uh, we know that in all part, in all kinds of parts of the world, Christians have not been able to meet. Mm. Christians in persecuted countries, um, Christians in prison, uh, uh, Christians. I mean, so, so we know that church is not dependent upon us mm. meeting. But I would love to. Um, I'd love us to be able to distinguish between what what uh, what God enables under all circumstances. Um, and and uh, so th uh, this is an emergency situation. I would hate us. To, I would I would hate it if after this people thought, well, I much preferred going to church online. I don't think I want to meet actual people anymore. I think I'd rather sit in my pajamas with my coffee and get the bit that I want. Um, so so uh, I think this is absolutely church at the moment, and and, um, and we know that God is not physically um, confined to any one area. God is present with all of us wherever. Uh, we are drawing us together into into the body of Christ, but there is something very particular about being required to come together um, physically with people that we wouldn't otherwise choose uh, to be in the same room with. Uh, yeah. And so um, I, 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 I'm very proud of the kind of things that uh, clergy and and Saint Melitus Ordinans are, are doing creatively around this at the moment. But I would hate it if people thought, let's carry on doing this afterwards. Yeah. Sarah? Yeah, I, um, yeah, I agree with Jane. Really, I think you know, you look at some of the descriptions that are given uh, for the church, the body, of, you know, the body of Christ is a body. You know, it's uh, uh, it is joined together. You know, the image of being built into a temple out of living stones. It's something very physical about those. And of course, you know, we were called to um, uh, break bread around a common table. So there, there is something for me about the physicality and the community that is important. Um, 
but but again i do think that this is church going on at the moment under these circumstances and i like jane have been amazed at the right way not just a spiritual connectivity has uh, is going on but also a pastoral connectivity uh, and also some very practical support um, and so in a sense that uh, building up of the body is happening in a different way um, and just to speak to the point of Jane about uh, numbers, I mean, it is just striking, uh, both in terms of the numbers of people who are watching, uh, you know, morning prayer being live stream across the diocese or, or on a Sunday morning has gone up. Um, and, and also I have spoken to people, you know, I spoke to somebody today who wouldn't normally attend church, but because their mother-in-law uh, wants to uh, go to church, you know, virtually, they are all now as a family sitting down and doing the complete set of Easter services, you know, Holy Week and Easter services. So they've engaged in a way that they would never have engaged with before. So um, we ought to learn from this because I think we should be learning around the way we're engaging with people. Uh, but I still think for me, there's something about drawing those people into a, a physical community for me is still important. Uh, but uh, Graham, what's your view? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's kind of like we're exploring another dimension of church at the moment um, that is that sort of remote connection. I often think of, you know, St. Paul uh, writing his letters from his prison cell in Rome. You know, his experience of church was down to just himself and maybe one or two people who were occasionally able to visit him. He was sort of under house arrest. He was under sort of self-isolation. And his experience of church physically was actually very limited. Uh, but he had this sort of extraordinary connection with people through the letters that he wrote that sort of travelled around the, uh, the Middle East. Now, that's not saying that's normative. Um, you know, sitting in your own in a, in a house arrest prison cell is not normative. But he was able to create a version of uh, a sort of connectedness uh, in a way that we're, we're seeking to do now. And so I, I sort of like to think of what we're experiencing now as, a, as one dimension of church that doesn't replace church as we normally experience it but it is still real church i was reminded of this a little bit by um, i had a bit of a thing on twitter recently um asking one or two questions and i got a very interesting comment from um the sort of network of um people who work with uh, dis uh, people with um uh, you know who have various forms of disability who uh, seek to engage with the church for whom actually it's very difficult to actually go to physical mm. church buildings on a sunday and they were saying, well, this is our experience of church. You know, for us, for whatever reason, uh, we actually found this is our normal experience of church. Um, are you saying this isn't real church? And so I think we have to say this is real church. Mm. Um, it may not be the fullness of church, but in some ways, every local parish church is not the fullness of church. There's more to be explored within the church as well. So I think that's something of what's, um, what's going on there. So it, it is maybe a bit of a crash course for us in in, in exploring this particular way of, of, of doing um, the church. I don't think, as I think like Jane, I think it'd be a great shame if everybody suddenly went to this, um, back to this, because I think mean, the, the temptation is, oh, I'll, I'll dip into that church for five minutes and then I'll, oh, I've got a bit bored with that, I don't like that song, so I'll go on to, them, to another one, which is a very sort of consumer-driven uh, approach to church, which is what the internet tends to kind of um, foster in us. Uh, and we do need, and I think that's my one thing about it, you know, go to a service on a Sunday morning online and stick with it. You know, don't be sort of tempted to sort of, you know, um, you know, pick and mix with with everything else. But um, I would just go on to one other um, uh, sort of last area to kind of explore before we before we we, we close. I guess one of the um, I mean, you can go back a little bit to what we we're thinking about at the beginning. Um, we, this pandemic is not the first pandemic that has hit the world. 
um, plagues and pestilence as something that's right the way through the Bible. It's happened in in uh, human history as well. And I suppose, um, do, are there lessons to be learnt from previous experiences of this, thinking of the episodes of plague and pestilence in the Bible? Um, you know, we've seen some areas where we, you know, we question, would, would we say this is a judgment of God? We probably would not. But are there still things to be learned from those past experience of Christians who have gone through times of severe um, the limitation on their life together, whether through plague or through warfare or persecution, um, that we have to learn from, you know, from that in the present. Any observations, thoughts on that? Well, and if I start and then, um, I mean, I, I suppose one of the things I've found um, increasingly important is um, the Psalms of Lament at the time, at this moment. The, the Bible um, does give us a real uh, opportunity to be honest to God this is you know we do not like this this is a horrible horrible situation and um, all kinds of people are suffering and um, and it's okay to shout at God sometimes um, and to to weep and lament and I think as Christians we've sometimes felt that it that we we can't be honest with God and that there's that strong streak um, of lament in the Bible and then I suppose the other thing that I've just that's that's coming more to the fore in some of the reporting at the moment is um, these plagues do disproportionately affect um, the, the poorer and more vulnerable people. Um, and again, as a society, I'd I'd love us to notice that and think and learn from it. People who are um, more more crowded together have fewer opportunities for saying I, I'm not I'm going to work from home. Um, whatever the, the reasons that it does seem to be a disproportionate effect um for the most vulnerable in our society um and that's something that um uh, that we're particularly noticing at the moment but is is true um even without plagues and pandemics yeah yeah i think that um that has struck me over the last few days days really that it is very clear that it is disproportionately affecting those least able uh, to to manage and we've we've just highlighted that so there is a challenge for us as Christians around what is our response. I think the other thing um, for me is that, um, you know, that in the Bible, in, all, in a lot of these situations, we do see that God is still moved with compassion and particularly in the life of Christ. I'm really struck that, you know, he is moved with compassion for grief and uh, uh, moved with compassion for people who are helpless and hapless. And um, so, so there is a sense for us to still know that in the midst of this, God is moved with compassion um, for, for what is going on. I also think more recently there is something for us to learn as well about those who respond and what is our, you, you know, what is our response in the future to that. I, I was rereading some of the letters that nurses wrote in the First World War and um, actually their experiences are not dissimilar to the nurses at the moment. Uh, uh, you know, it's a very different type of event, but the pressures that are put on them uh, are considerable. And in the First World War, a lot of women really uh, stood up and changed their roles going to the front line. But as soon as the war stopped, um, they all had to go back to what they were doing before. And so there is something for us to learn. You know, uh, the, um, these heroes that are putting themselves really on the front line for us. But actually, we ought to also ought to reflect on that about how we have been valuing them uh, and how we should value them. And that's not just the nurses and the doctors; it's the dustmen, it's the people working in our supermarkets and pharmacists, 
uh, you know. Um, so for me as well, that you know, I do think you know God gives us the ability to learn, and so what is it that He's wanting us to learn about how we uh, treat our neighbours, really? I think it's, it's something I've been thinking about a bit. I mean, it's a slightly odd thing, but I've been going back to a bit of sort of plague literature, if you like, over the last few weeks. I've been reading Albert Camus' book, The um, the, the Plague, and um, there's a that's remarkable by Daniel Defoe in the 17th century, um, a journal of the plague year, which is his account, a sort of fictional account of the plague that hit London in the middle of the 17th century, um, just before the fire of London. And, um, and uh, you know, to, to, it's fascinating how so many of the same characteristics happen there, you know, sort of conspiracy theories, uh, the sort of stigmatization of particular groups, um, you know, the fragmenting of the city into some healthy zones and, and sick zones and so on. Um, you know, the rich getting out of the city and leaving the poor behind, you know, all that sort of tends to happen. Um, but I think the other thing that struck me about it was that, you know, there is in, in, you know, in his world, you know, this sense of, you know, this is a judgment from God, which obviously is picked up in the, in the Bible. And, and I suppose what I, what I reflect on that is that the, the Greek word for judgment is crisis, crisis. And um, if you think of it as crisis, crisis is a, something that calls into, into question your way of life and makes you stand back and think, actually, how, how are we living here? And it seems to me that this pandemic raises all kinds of questions about our way of life. It questions how we treat the animal world, uh, about uh, inequality across uh, the world, the way in which this impacts so many different people, the way in which we travel, and the way in which this disease has, has, has um, traveled across the world through you know, our uh, increased ability to, um, you know, to move across the world, the impact we're having upon the environment. It's raising all kinds of questions, how we connect with one another, what does it mean to have neighbors? Um, it is a crisis in, in that sense. And so you can see it, in that, not that God has sent it upon us for that reason, but I think as you were saying, Sarah, it asks us all kinds of questions. And I suppose that's in some ways the most significant thing maybe for going on how will this change us uh a bit like we were saying with with um uh, with church it would be a shame if we went back to exactly like we were before because every uh, crisis like this is an opportunity for repentance and change uh, and the confession of sins that's again one of the things that comes out when you read this old literature on plague people say well, we must we must confess our sins i was reading luther's um, reflection on sin in, in, on a plague that hit Wittenberg and one of the things we need to do is confess our sins. Now that isn't to somehow avert the plague but it's to look at our way of life, where have we gone wrong, where do we need to change and there are some really important sort of bigger social, political, um, you know, theological questions about the way we live that this, this pandemic raises for us. Can I ask Sarah just one thing very quickly at the end. Sarah I noticed you've written a letter um, a virtual letter to all the children in the diocese. Why did you do that? Why did you choose to do that? Uh, well, um, I suppose I, I was talking to uh, I was talking to some of our clergy in the diocese, really, and um, one of them spoke to me very passionately about how the children uh, and the young people felt that they um, had sort of been lost in it, really. Um, you know, uh, around when people were anxious and uh, you know parents anxious, um, and um, and. And, and he, he, you know, he said to me, you know, why don't you write to them? Um, and so actually it was somebody else that said to me, why don't you do it? Um, and uh, so, so I thought, yeah, well, why shouldn't I do it? And of course, the children were the last ones, you know, they were the last ones that were out there that were still going to school. 
and talking to parents uh, and the children found that quite difficult really that everybody else was at home but they were still being sent out and uh, and children whose parents were going out each day uh, to the hospitals and they knew there was something difficult so it was a, that sort of collection of things that thought well actually I'm writing out to clergy and uh, you know I do things for adults so why not write to children and young people and I have to say I have been overwhelmed by their requests for prayers I mean they are you know, uh, I said I was going to put them in a pot. I think I've got a bucket. Uh, and uh, I, I'm very moved by what they've written as well. Great privilege to pray for them. Yeah. I'm going to have to get up earlier to do it. Yeah. Such a wonderful thing to do. Really, really very good. And um, we've uh, reached the end of our time. And um, so, Sarah, can I say thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, during this um, Holy Week and especially during a, um, uh, a very busy time for you and for, for all of us really at the moment. It's been great to get to chew over some of these issues yeah. together and um, so thank you so much for joining us well, today. Thank you for having me, thank you. And uh, thank you as always to Jane. My pleasure, it's, um, it's a privilege to, to be here with two bishops at such a time. Well it's been really good to um, talk together. So I hope you found this discussion helpful, it's uh, just the beginning of all kinds of really interesting sort of questions to be um, thought through as we go through this pandemic together and uh, as um, uh, as we, um, we, we live and pray our way through this really difficult time not just within the church but within the nation within the world uh, at the moment. It's very seldom we get something that affects almost everybody across the entire planet and uh, so, um, so to all of you listening to this um, we hope you're keeping well and uh, that you are um, uh, being able to kind of manage through this um, strange time of isolation and change. But uh, we'll be back again with uh, the next uh, God Pod before too long. So um, thank you for listening and uh, we will no doubt um, uh, see you, hear you uh, again at some point. Goodbye. was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.